finish up our message from last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, you would speak to our hearts as only you can through the power of your spirit, through the power of your word. Lord, we know that your word is a living word. It's not just a book. It's, it's a book that gives us life. And uh, Father, we thank you that we can have our own personal copy of your book to read and to study on our own. Lord, help us never take that for granted. We pray for our children as they're dismissed to their classes, that you'd watch over them and just uh, give the teachers insight on how to best teach them the word of God in a way that they can understand and comprehend it. And even pray for those in the nursery as well. And pray that you would just uh, bless our time as well. Set, help us to set aside the busyness of our morning and to focus on you and your word. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And they'll be coming back up for the... Uh, offering so somebody's going to have to go down and get them <laughs> at the end of the message so they can witness the baptism it's always good to have a baptism lisa's getting baptized this morning your family and friends here and we're just appreciative of them coming out and helping her celebrate this time but this morning we want to turn our hearts back to first corinthians we've been in the book of first corinthians now for several weeks months and um We've been looking, the last, last Sunday we started a message called The Characteristics of a Conceited Church. The Characteristics of a Conceited Church. Now remember, we're dealing with a church here in Corinth um, that is just that. It's very conceited <laughs> by Paul's own admission. And I'm sure that grieves his heart because Paul was who? He was the founding pastor of this church. So it's not something he would say lightly about a group of individuals that he has come to love and to care for, and he spent some 18 months there uh, ministering to their hearts and their souls. And then Apollos came and took over the ministry after Paul uh, left and went on to Ephesus. And while he was away, he got word by um, communication letter, obviously they didn't have cell phones or texts or anything like that, so... It probably took a while to get word to him, but when he got the word, he was grieved, and so he wrote them a couple letters. Three, actually. We have two of them in, in the context of Scripture, and we're going to look at one of them uh, this morning in chapter 4, and I just want to read our text for us, verses 6 through 13, and we'll continue from last week. I'll do a little review, and then um, we'll uh, continue in the text. But he says here in verse uh, 6, of chapter 4, 1 Corinthians, I have applied all these things to myself, this is Paul speaking, and Apollos for your benefits, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Verse 8, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. 
Through the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, last week, we looked at two of the characteristics of a conceited church. The first one was a conceited church is indifferent to the word of God. That's what he points out here in verse 6. He says, look, I've applied these things to Paul and Apollos. We've applied them to ourselves as well. And then he says, why do we do this? That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. What does that mean? It means they were gone beyond what was written in the word of God, in the revealed word of God. They went beyond that. In particular, they, they went beyond that in a way that stressed their own pride, their own knowledge. They came up with their own wisdom. They brought in the wisdom of the world. And the scripture clearly tells us not to do such a thing, especially to the church of Christ. And not only that, but they began to lift up and exalt those who led them, those who were pastors over them and elders over them. We see this in the church, in many churches today. People almost worship those in ministry. And that has no place. That's not what we're called to do as a church. There's nothing wrong with having healthy respect for someone who teaches the Word of God, for someone who ministers, maybe in a Sunday school class. But never are we to go beyond that biblical reverence, maybe for someone's position or something like that, to the point where our whole fixation is focused on an individual. Today I call it the celebrity minister, the person who really yearns for that kind of attention. They long for that kind of attention. And you can see it in a lot of different churches today where the congregation worships an individual to the degree where even when things are pointed out in that individual's life that are wrong, they still worship him. They don't care. They, they're setting aside the qualifications of a pastor or the qualifications of an elder that the scriptures give us. And they say, well, yeah, okay, so he's laundering money and he's cheating on his wife and he's an alcoholic and, he's, and they go through the list. But, you know, we have to forgive him and he's our pastor. <laughs> what are we supposed to do? Well, the scripture gives us a clear way of dealing with someone who is not living up to the role of a pastor or minister or elder, or even for that matter, a Christian. Because this applies not just to pastors, it applies to believers, it applies to the whole church. And that's who he is addressing here. And so he wants them to understand clearly, look, you're not here to worship Paul, you're not here to worship Apollos or Peter. And that's what they were doing. Because earlier in the book, chapter 1, he writes them and he says, you know what? You got it all wrong. You have different groups. You you have one group that's following the Apostle Paul. I'm of Paul. Then you have another group. Well, no, we we believe in Apollos. He speaks a lot more eloquently than Paul. No, we're going to go with Peter. He's a real dynamic guy. And then you even had a group that said what? Well, we're just going to stick with Jesus. And you think, well, that's the group I want to be with. But they were doing it for the wrong reason. They were doing it in a prideful way, not in a humble, broken way. 
And so all this was going on within this church. And it really, what happened was the church became divided. The church was broken up into little groupy groups. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Jesus. And Paul had to address that because they were going beyond what was written in Scripture. And notice he says there in verse 6 that you, the reason you shouldn't do this is because you could become puffed up. And we looked at what that word means. It literally means to have an inflated view of yourself. I think one of the poorest testimonies that most Christians give a lost and dying world is just that. They have an inflated view of themselves. Somehow they think because you go to church or somehow you're this or you're that or maybe you teach Sunday school or you're an elder or you're a pastor or whatever, that somehow that, that you're above, you've ri- found the key to rise above all of the sin that people deal with. And that's just not true. <laughs> We're all in the same boat together. We're all stuck in this sinful world, in this sinful body, And until he comes back, we need to rely on his spirit to give us the wisdom and the power and the dynamic to live a life that's honoring to him. We shouldn't walk around with our chest popped up, you know, puffed out saying, oh, I'm a Christian. I don't don't talk to people that are not Christians. I don't don't fraternize with those kind of people. You know, I, I have my little group at church, and that's who I hang with, and, you know, I don't want to be tainted by the world. That's a sinful view of your Christianity, if that's how you view it. That's not what we're called to do. Matter of fact, Jesus said just the opposite. Rather than being conceited and being stuck on yourself and being puffed up, why don't you break outside of the four walls of your church and figure out how you can minister to the broken and, and hurting people of this world? that desperately need to hear the gospel message. That's what we're called to do. We're called to get down in the gutter with them and talk with them and minister to them. That's what the Bible calls us to do. And Jesus did that. He laid that example down for us. I was excited a couple weeks ago at the men's breakfast. Um, Michael shared his testimony and gave us a little teaching. And it, it, it talked about really being a representative for Christ in this lost and dying world and how that's a real burden on his heart. And, you know, we should all share that burden. We should be broken over what we see even going on here in the peninsula, even in Redwood City, in people's lives. And that brokenness should cause us to reach out to them. And whether it's inviting them to church whether it's giving them a track, whether it's sharing your testimony with them, whether it's befriending them and waiting for the Lord to open up a door for you to share the gospel with them, that's what we're called to do. We're not called to sit here in a little holy huddle and just pray for them. Now, that's a wonderful thing, but we're called to do so much more than that. We're called to live our faith out in this world in which we live. See, that's what the Corinthian church failed to understand. What they did is they brought the world into the church. They brought the philosophy of the world into the church. And it just caused major divisions. It caused issues. It caused problems. And that's not honoring to the Lord. Well, the second thing we saw 
which not only is a conceited church, a church that is indifferent to the word of God, but a conceited church is ungrateful. And you know, one more thing on the indifference of the word of God. I think the way that you can prove your, your, that that's not so as a believer, that's not so as a church, is to make this, the word of God, the central foundation of your ministry. I mean, that's why we teach through the Bible. That's why we teach through books of the Bible. Because you can't come up to me after the service and say, well, pastor, you know, that sermon, I think you picked that sermon just for me. No, I picked that sermon because it's the next verse we're going through. (laughs) And if that's just for you, well, God bless you, because God knows it's just for you. But see, it it helps you avoid getting on your little soapbox and preaching only on what I want to preach about. And trust me, there's a lot of things I want to tell everybody (laughs) about the Lord, about different things, about the church. But you know what? I've chosen to restrict myself to the confines of God's word. So I'm not off doing my own thing. I'm not off teaching whatever I want to teach. I'm held to the the boundaries of the Word of God. Now, occasionally we break off and do a topical sermon here and there. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that's the steady diet of any church, I mean, just think about it logically. Would you rather know where the teaching is going to be in two weeks or three weeks ahead of time so maybe you can read up on it? Or would you rather somebody get up and maybe this week I'm talking about the family, next, next week I'm, I'm talking about living a holy life, and the week after that I'm, I'm talking about the dynamics of Christ's death. I mean, you have no way to know where I'm going, where I'm headed, if that's the format of the teaching. But if you're going through a book, I mean, you got the same book I do. It even makes it more challenging. Because a lot of times people, sometimes they outstudy you. <laughs> You know, people come up after the sermon and say, well, you know that one verse there, you know, it says this, what, what do you think? that? You know, I, I didn't even realize, I didn't see that. And that's exciting to know that you're studying on your own. Don't rely just on someone getting up every Sunday and giving you like a baby little, you know, feeding you like a bunch of little babies, like you can't feed yourselves. You have the same book that I have. And today with a lot of resources and things like that that are available to us, there's no reason why you can't study the text ahead of time, and come on Sunday morning prepared with a prepared heart to receive it. So don't neglect, don't be indifferent to the word of God. Secondly, it says that he's un, they're ungrateful. A conceited church is ungrateful. We went over this last week, verse 7. He says, for who sees anything different in you? In other words, you know what? You're just like everybody else. Don't think you're, you're not. Don't have a high view, a puffed up view about yourself. Why do you have what you have that you did not receive? In other words, what he's saying is, you know what? Everything that you have, you received. And that's what scriptures points out to us. He tells us very clearly that, you know what? There, there's, no, uh, there's nothing that we have not received that it wasn't from the Father above. And so he says, don't be ungrateful. Don't be conceited. Don't exhibit an ungrateful heart. And he asked the question at the end of the, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, God has blessed us with so many things, and yet even as believers, sometimes we find ourselves whining about the things we don't have. And it's like, you know what? If you don't have it, it's probably because God doesn't want you to have it at this point in time. And so don't be ungrateful. 
And today, we want to look at the third one. A conceited church is a self-complacent church. Self-complacent. You know, before he asked three questions, who sees anything different in you? In other words, you're just like everybody else. Secondly, he says, why, uh, do you, what do you have that you did not receive? And then thirdly, he says, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now he kind of gives these three answers in this text. He begins to give us three answers of those questions. In verse 8, look at what it says. Already you have all you want. Already you have all you want. And that was their attitude. Now he's speaking here with a lot of sarcasm, as he does throughout the book of Corinthians. He's constantly being sarcastic with them. Because sometimes sarcasm, if it's used rightly, can really drive a message home a lot quicker than just being blunt with somebody. And so he uses sarcasm here. And he talks about their, some, their, their self-complacent attitude. Their, another way to say it is self-satisfaction. They were satisfied just amongst themselves. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule. Without, without, without us you have become kings. And would it that you did already reign that you might share the rule with that we might share the rule with you. And so he talks about their attitude here. Um, it's hard sometimes to when 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 Paul is using sarcasm to understand really what he's saying. Why is he saying this to these people? You know, this this verse, as I was studying this, it reminds me of the, I think it's the Laodicean church in Revelation where he says, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Remember those verses out of, I think it's Revelation 3? See, that's exactly where this church was. They thought they had need of nothing. I mean, they have an overabundance of gifts. They had all this Wisdom, they thought. They had all the philosophy of the world in their church. They had multiple leaders and multiple speakers to the point where they could actually afford to have different groups worshiping the different guys. Now, the teachers weren't encouraging this. This was the people who were doing this. And so he's using sarcasm here in verse 8 to get their attention because Corinth The city, if you remember in our, in our uh, introduction to this book, was a very wealthy city. Very wealthy. It was filled with commerce and all kinds of people lived there. Different backgrounds, all kinds of, very, very rich city. Well, unfortunately, that richness, that attitude, that worldliness, that philosophy of the world had infected the church. And they were self-satisfied with what they had. They were living as if they were already in the millennium. And they had already received the rewards, you might say. They had the timing wrong. They lived as if 
they had even had the right to judge, as we saw a couple weeks ago. And that is not any man's right. That's God's right. God judges us. So he says here, you are already filled. You're full. The idea of being filled is that you have an abundance. I mean, this really describes us in America, doesn't it? I mean, when's the last time you, you had to sit down at a, at a table and pray because you were hungry and you had no food? I mean, it just doesn't happen that often. I'm sure it does. But not that much. Most of us have an abundance of food. Most of us have too much food. Most of us have too many choices to choose from. What do you want to eat tonight? Well, I don't know. What do you want? Well, do you want the steak? Well, when you want the chicken? You want the salmon? You want the... I mean, there are parts of the world, beloved, they, they don't have anything to eat. Nothing. We take all this for granted. We have an overabundance. Yesterday, I took my wife out for lunch, early dinner lunch. We went to a restaurant, and clearly our eyes were bigger than our stomachs. Hard to believe, but it was true. <laughs> we sat down, we started ordering food. And she meant to order two little appetizers that had like two or three shrimp on them. And uh, as she was ordering, it had a very similar, it was like the dumbed-down version of the entree. So it's like an appetizer version of an entree. Well, the waiter mistook her order and thought she was ordering two entrees. He kept on saying, oh, you want two? She's like, yeah, just two, you know, just two of the little. <laughs> and she's pointed to it on the menu. Well, he got it wrong, and so our food came. Our appetizers came first. And we thought it was odd because they said, well, you know, you get two appetizers then. I'm thinking, okay, whatever. <laughs> so we ordered two appetizers. <laughs> so we're eating away. Well, by the time we even got our meal, we were kind of full. And so the waiter brings out these two entrees, sets it in front of my wife, and I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, you know. And she's like, I don't think I ordered this. He goes, well, yeah, you know, you, you ordered this two entrees. So he, the server left. He wasn't our waiter. He just brought the food. And then the guy came, and, I, and she goes, well, I guess we can take it home. I'm like, it's, it's like 20 bucks, man. I mean, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, I'm not paying for this. This is crazy, you know. This is two times here. So I said, let's talk to him. So, the, you know, we didn't touch it or anything. The guy came back and I said, hey, you know, we meant to order this little entree, this tiny one with two or three shrimp, not the one with six shrimp. Oh, he goes, I was wondering he was going to eat all his food. And uh, by the time we left, we were just, you know, so they took one away. But even so, I mean, there's some in our refrigerator now. You know, no dessert, nothing. I mean, we were full. You know, they could have brought out anything. We, oh, no, not going to do it. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to a point where you're just overfilled and somebody puts something really good in front of you and say, I can't eat anymore. Looks really good, but I can't. That's how they were. That was their attitude. That is what they were saying. And what Paul is saying is, hey, guys, you, you know what? You are already filled. So you think you have an attitude that you're just stuffed spiritually. So when someone comes to teach you, you're just going, ugh, can't handle anymore. Nobody can give you anything. I talked to an individual one time that told me this. We went to a, a conference and 
we were talking about our time at the conference, and he just mentioned cash. I said, no more sermons. Can't handle anymore. Too much. I thought, wow, wait a minute. See, the Corinthian church was just like that. They thought they knew it all. They thought they knew it all. They're not living under the word of God. They thought they had already arrived. And they're the individuals that, you know, would, would come and listen to Paul with their arms crossed. Like, yeah, what are you going to teach me, pal? I don't follow you anyway. I follow Apollos. He's a lot wiser than you. There's people like that in churches today. They sit there when you start preaching, their arms are folded. All they want to hear is something new. Just tell me something I haven't heard. Nobody can feed them because they don't have their heart open. But then Paul goes on there. He says, you've already become rich. He not only says you you have all you want, self-satisfied in your own spirituality, but you're self-sufficient. You don't need anybody else. You're already full. That is conceit. And now he's telling them, You've already become rich. You're self-sufficient. That's really arrogance. We see this a lot of times with individuals who get a really, really, really good education. Maybe they're from a foreign country and they come to America and get an education and they go back to their home country and they get involved in ministry. And sometimes... They have a very arrogant attitude toward the uneducated people of their community because they feel that they have arrived. And he also says here, you have become kings. (laughs) This is another stab at sarcasm. In other words, you enjoy the honor and prestige of kings. You think that people should really honor you and not God. They were in a way, living like they were already kings, like they already had their crowns. That's why he says, you're already ruling and reigning. Who can offer you a crown? Who can feed you? Who can give you anything? This is his question. You've already made it your own. How did you do this? Well, Paul says there clearly, well, you did it without us. You don't need us apostles, that's for sure. You guys think you're so self-sufficient, you can do it all on your own. You don't need us. You never believed that you needed us. You haven't even now understood that somehow God has used us, Paul speaking of himself here, as a vessel to get you where you were. I mean, the Corinthians were really living an illusion. They were, they were complacent. They were self-satisfied. They were disobedient. They were ungrateful. And Christ, in his wisdom, could not even himself probably appease their hunger or their thirst. They couldn't be filled because they were living as if they had already been full. They didn't even need the apostles. I talk to people like that. They, 
they, you know, they say, oh, I'm a Christian. Really? You're a Christian? Where do you go to church? Well, I don't go to church. I don't need to go to church. You don't need to go to church. No, I just watch some guy on TV or just do this or do that. Well, as a Christian, you're living in disobedience to the word of God. The Bible says that you shouldn't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. I always thought that verse was interesting because it, it calls it a habit. That you can develop a habit of not fellowshipping with other believers. It's easy to do. Just don't go to church for a couple of weeks. You know, that's like my wife and I, whenever we go away, we go on vacation, and if that involves a Sunday, first of all, we're excited to go to another fellowship because a lot of times we don't have the opportunity, but we always go to church. Not in a legalistic way, but we want to go to church, but it's kind of exciting. You, you get to go to a church, nobody really knows you. You sit down and you enjoy the sermon. You get to talk to people, see how they do things. We, we long to do that. I've known pastors who have gone on vacation, but they don't really go anywhere. They just stay at home. They don't travel anywhere. So where do you go to church? Well, I'm on vacation. What? These are pastors. I just need a break. Okay. I can't even comprehend that. A break from what God commands you to do? So if you ever go on vacation and you go to a church, bring, bring me back the bulletin. Bring me back. I'm always interested in stuff like that. Not as proof that you went to church, but just it's just kind of fun to look at other people's stuff. Trying to be sneaky, aren't I? Yeah, okay. But Paul here is being very sarcastic. He's saying, you know what? You guys already think that you're kings. They're self-absorbed. They're focused so much on themselves they can't even see. Christ, they can't even see God. They can't even see their own inadequacies. I think when a church or a Christian even becomes indifferent to the word of God and possesses an ungrateful attitude and becomes self-complacent, what, what is the underlying sin that they're exhibiting? It's pride. It's pride every time. And pride is the root of all sin. That'll take you down quicker than anything else. Now, Paul mentions here in verse 9 about his own humility, about the apostles' humility. He says, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. So you Corinthians think that you're number one on the list. Well, we view ourselves as being last. We view ourselves as individuals who are Look, he calls himself spectacles. For I, thank, for I think that God has exhibited us as apostles, last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world. See, to the world, having a Bible study, reading the Word of God, understanding a, a sermon, 
That doesn't mean anything to them. They don't care. It's a waste of time. It's worthless teaching. It's just, it's just get away with, do away with these people. They deserve death. There's no use for them in society. That's kind of what he's using here. When he talks about death here, the imagery used is of a person who's brought into the, the arena who has been condemned to die as a criminal. And they would come in stages, and usually the last ones that were brought out were for slaughter. And that was the grand finale. And what Paul is saying in this case, God brought the apostles out to be a spectacle in the sight of men in order to show his glory. The prisoners were under the the sentence of death and they would be hauled out into arena and they would have to fight wild beasts for their life. Usually all the time they would lose. That's That's the mentality, the imagery he's using here. One commentator says this, he translates condemned to death this way, God means us apostles to come in at the very end like doomed gladiators in the arena. I mean, Jesus told them everything. He told them about his soon coming arrest. They told him, Jesus told them about his death, about his resurrection. <clears throat> Unfortunately, they didn't understand it. They didn't get it. They didn't understand what he was talking about when he was with them. But instead of asking him to explain even more, what did they do? They sat around the table and argued who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Remember that? When Jesus asked them what they were doing, they were obviously too ashamed to reply. And he says this in Mark 9, when he calls them out on this. He says, if anyone wants to be first... He shall be last of all, servant of all. And then taking a little child in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. See, the life of a disciple of Christ is the life of servanthood. It's not the life of someone being served. Christians should be servants first and foremost because the life of a servant is the life of someone who is exhibiting humility. So he says here, you know what? We look as like spectacles, both to angels and men. They were ridiculed, they were spit upon, they were imprisoned. The apostles were, they were beaten, they were mocked. They were treated like common criminals. Then they were last, but when Christ returns, guess what? They will be first. They will be first. So he calls them spectacles. And then in verse 10 there, he moves on and he says, you know what? We are fools for Christ's sake. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise. What is he saying? He's saying you still really think of the gospel as foolish and of all of its ministers as foolish you're ashamed of being Christ's servant what do you want Corinthians you want glory you want your own honor you want 
worldly recognition. See, they still loved the, the philosophies of the world and the human wisdom. They were still tempted to look on preachers as somebody who's out there babbling foolish talk. They couldn't bear to be a fool for Christ's sake. See, the message we believe, beloved, is a message of foolishness to the world. Everything from the idea that God created us in a six-day period to the idea that Christ is coming back one day. They look at us and they mock us. They say, who would believe such a story? And we all were right there at one point in our life before Christ stepped into our lives and transformed us. So we shouldn't be quick to condemn or judge, but it should allow compassion to kind of weigh heavy on our hearts for those individuals. To realize that, you know what, that's exactly where I was before Christ made an impression on my life. When my brother, when I came home from college one weekend and he started preaching to me, I looked at him and I thought he'd lost his mind. I thought, who kidnapped my brother? Who is this guy? But I saw a change in his life. And over a period of weeks, between going back and talking to the Catholic priest because I was raised Catholic and talking to my other brother who had come to Christ, and I had seen a transformation in their lives that no other religion in the world could have done. And then God tapped me on the shoulder said, you know what, I'm going to transform you too. And he did. And now that foolish message that once I mocked now has been the message that I cling to every day. The message that God, the eternal creator God, would somehow look down on this little puny world and pick me out of everybody and say, you know what, I'm going to love you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to transform you. And all that sin that you're carrying around every day is going to be gone because you're going to trust in the sacrifice of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do, you'll be a new person because the Bible says, old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. See, that's really what becoming a Christian is. Becoming a Christian is not just growing up in a Christian family. It's not just coming to church or going to Sunday school or taking communion or getting baptized. or I mean, all those things are good things. Don't get me wrong. But none of that makes you a Christian. The Bible is very clear that the only way we come to Christ, the only way we become a follower of Christ is when God transforms our heart, he opens our, our blind eyes and gives our dead souls life. He transforms us. And then that foolish message becomes a message that we cling to the rest of our lives. He talks about being in to- toil here. It means work to the point of exhaustion. He talks about being reviled. That means he's basically abused with words. I mean, all those things are part of the Christian's life. Sufferers, that we will suffer for his sake. 
See, sometimes people come to Christ and they think it's just going to be a big party. <laughs> oh, I just came to Jesus because he's going to make my life better and he's going to give me more money in my job and make my happy family happier. And then they realize pretty soon, wow, just the opposite's happening. Wait a minute. You know, since I've changed and nobody else has changed, all of a sudden I become kind of a, a thorn in everybody's side in my family. What are you doing, God? Well, God's doing exactly what he said he'd do. And so we're not, we're not called to a Christian life of peace and prosperity and health and wealth. We're called to suffer. He promises that. That's what he says there in verse 11 to 12. He describes all the kind of stuff. We hunger, we thirst, we're distressed, buffeted, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands, we're reviled, we're persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Notice the last word he uses here in verse 13. We have become and still are like the scum. Scum, the, the dregs of society. It's kind of like when you go to the sink and you got a sink load of dishes. You know, some of them you can just rinse off and throw in the dishwasher and be okay. But then you get to that pan at the bottom of the pile and it's got all the oil and the grease from everything else you washed and it's still got a layer of crud on the bottom of it. I don't care what the commercials say. You can't just throw that in the dishwasher. Okay, it needs to be cleaned. It needs to be cleaned properly. And sometimes it's so thick on there, you've got to take a spatula or something and scrape that stuff. That's the idea. That's what Paul, that's the image that Paul is using. All that, that crud that comes off that pan, that's what he is feeling the world looks at him as. The lowest, the most degraded criminals. A lot of times these people were sacrificed in pagan ceremonies. They were looked down upon so much. That's the way the world looked at the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine that? See, it's hard for believers to to get along in the world while they're giving out the gospel. It's a lot easier just to not make any waves. It's a lot easier just, well, you know, you can believe what you believe and I'll believe. You know, there's a thing called truth and we have habit. We have it in the word of God and so we need to be diligent to present this light, this truth to a lost and dying world. Because the other option is you have Satan out there who is the god of this world, the ruler of darkness, he's described. And the, the interesting thing is his kingdom cannot stand in the light of the gospel. So it will persecute, it will try to destroy anyone who lives in a way that's honoring to Christ. I was talking on evangelism one time and I mentioned about how sometimes when you go out and you try to share Christ with people that you're going to get rebuffed, you're going to get some pushback, some blowback. And I remember this one individual telling me, Say, you know, you said that in your sermon. I don't ever get any issues from anybody. And I thought, well, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you not doing? 
you're clearly not living for Christ in a way that would be effective for him. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, we are called to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And then he says this, that he may exalt you at the proper time. See, it's not that we're not going to be full. It's not that we're not going to be kings. It's not that we're, we're not going to not have want. We will one day when that time comes. And it will happen at the proper time, at the time of God's choosing. And so he is really denunciating the Corinthians' proud, divisive, factious spirit. I don't know about you, but I'm glad to be part of a church that's not a conceited church. It's not a church that thinks more of themselves than they ought. I'm proud to be part of a church that has an undying yearning and hunger for the Word of God. I count it a blessing to be part of a church that's willing to take a stance that sometimes is not popular with society or with the world. I'm pleased to be part of a congregation that more than anything else desires God's truth and desires to grow in the knowledge of God's truth. We're not here to lift ourselves up or exalt ourselves. We're not saying we're the only church on the corner, the only church on the block. There's a lot of good churches out there. But at the same time, I never want to take for granted what we have here as a congregation, as a family. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the words of Paul to our hearts. We pray, Lord, as we close off this time with a song, Lord, and then we hear our uh, offering and our missions update and, and have uh, Lisa's baptism. Lord, that you would just uh, continue to bless the remainder of our service. We pray for anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in you. Lord, I pray that they would recognize their need of a Savior. Lord, we've all sinned in a myriad of ways. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not one person in this room here today that could raise their hand and honestly say, I've never done anything wrong in my entire life. I'm perfect And because of that, we've all sinned. We all need a remedy for our sin, and Christ is that remedy. He has come, he's given his life, he's a sacrifice. And we pray this morning, if there's any here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that they would cry out, even from the depths of their heart this morning, Lord, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to believe in you. Help me to trust in you, even though I don't see you. Help me to believe the words that I heard this morning, even though I don't have it all figured out. I pray, Lord, that you would do the work that only you can in that individual's heart, and that you would draw them to the Savior as only you can. And for us believers, I pray that as we leave here today and go out into this sin-stained world, Lord, it's a crazy world we live in, but Father, you've given us the answer, you've given us the hope, you've given us the message of forgiveness and grace and love. 
that comes in the message of the gospel. I pray that we would not only live up to the standard of being a Christian, being a Christ follower, but also that we'd be willing to share that message with others around us. That we would see many come to the knowledge of the Savior. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.